This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for this interview episode. Once again, on our own, Rebecca, you've really been um, doing the most on our interviews. It's Rebecca Ford. Hi. You have been doing hard work, but you've been talking to fascinating people, so I don't feel too bad for you. Um, And this week you talked to Domi Shi, the director of Turning Red. Uh, We don't talk about animation on this show as much as we should, especially since you and I both have small children. Um, But Turning Red really is coming into this award season as a very strong animated contender. And it's such a personal story for Domi that I imagine it was really fun to talk to her. It was really fun. And I don't, we didn't do this on purpose, but having back to back episodes that sort of explore the relationship with an Asian mom is like so hilarious (laughs) to me. Um, You know, she made Bao, which won the short film Oscar. And she basically said she had some leftover sort of emotions about her own relationship with her mom that she wanted to put in a feature film. And and that's how we um, got Turning Red, which, you know, really is uh, about a 13-year-old girl who grew up in Canada, which is exactly Domi's story, and and was very um, dedicated to her, you know, her mom and her family, and then goes through these sort of insane uh, hormonal shifts as as everyone does at that age, and is sort of trying to figure out who she is um, after that, and turns her into a uh, red panda. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as we all did, all right. Yeah, guys, speaking of mom stuff in Bao, just the, the the viscerality of the way that it represents being a mother and that I have always really clung to. And I feel like so much of that is in Turning Red, too. You know, it's a story about a big red panda, but the emotions are just right there on the surface. And Pixar is known for, you know, wringing emotions out of people, but Turning Red felt really different and specific and has really stuck with me. Yeah, I think the way it is so specific, both at capturing um, the sort of Asian immigrant family, but also capturing this era of like early 2000s, boy bands, flip phones, like every little detail is just in this film. And I think that specificity really does um, help bring out emotion, as you're saying. Yeah. Uh, Well, let's hear your conversation with Domi Shi. I am so excited to welcome Domi Shi to the podcast today. She's the director of Turning Red. And hi. Hello. (laughs) Great to be here. Thank you for doing this. Um, I'm so curious when the idea to make this feature length film first kind of came to you, because I know, you know, you won the Oscar for your short bow a few years ago, and I'm curious if it was already percolating or already in the works when you were going through that part of the award season. 
Yes, it was. Um, when I finished Bao, uh, Pixar had approached me and asked me to uh, if I wanted to develop three ideas to pitch uh, for feature films. And I said yes. And um, I knew at the time, and this was like 2017, that I wanted to make a movie about a teen girl coming of age. So all three of my ideas uh, were about different teen girls coming of age in different ways. But Turning Red was the most autobiographical Mm -hmm. uh, out of the three ideas. And um, it was also like a place where I was able to put all of the all of the like leftover ideas and thoughts and emotions I had while making Bao about my mom. <laughs> I was able to put it into turning red. And I, I, you know, I didn't know if Pixar would want to make something so specific because I pitched it as like pretty much what you end up seeing in the movie. It's a Chinese Canadian girl living in the early 2000s. Um, it's about her relationship with her mom and dealing with magical puberty that comes in the form of a giant furry red panda. And and Pixar somehow was like, yes, that that seems like a universal story. <laughs> um, because I think in that specificity, uh, they did see that universal experience of like any kid waking up one day and just not recognizing themselves in the mirror and dealing with and processing all of their emotions uh, at that at that age in life. And so I found so much of this story relatable, maybe because I was also a teenager in, in around the same time with a Chinese mom, but I do think it is so universal. So I'm, I am curious what, what specific things were really pulled from your own upbringing? Was it sort of the general sort of uh, way may views family or is it more specific things like the deep love for boy bands and things like that? <laughs> yeah, I think it's everything. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like for the story specifically, I really wanted to just explore that really unique and specific struggle of an immigrant kid and how they deal with honoring their parents and their family and all the sacrifices that uh, their parents made for them versus like embracing their their new emerging self that's that grew up in a different environment than their parents that in embracing that they're going to be kind of like moving away from their family and 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 that culture just naturally it's just going to be a thing that naturally happens to an immigrant kid and and the and the struggle of that and in the beginning, when we were working on the story, like I didn't want it to be this um, very black and white, typical story of this oppressed kid with militant parents who just wants to break free and be herself and she, you know reject you know family and all that stuff. Because for May in the movie, she genuinely loves her family. She loves her mom. They're like besties in the beginning. Uh, they like eat together. They watch soap operas together. So it's a very it's very hard for her to be growing up and and realizing that she's growing into a different person than her mom. And that was the specific thing I wanted to explore because that's what I struggled with when I was uh, May's age. And even now, too, I think that's something that is doesn't ever really go away for immigrant children. Um, and then, yes, that, then, like, uh, the movie was also an opportunity just to, like, showcase just this very specific world that I grew up in as a Chinese Canadian in Toronto. It was, uh, it was, it allowed opportunities for me to plant like Canadian Easter eggs 
Chinese family home Easter eggs, like the rice cooker in the corner, um, you know, the fact that the the range on the on the stove is wrapped in tin foil. <laughs> right. um, I thought every family had that. I didn't realize till I was older that wasn't a thing. <laughs> exactly. So there's that part of it too. Yeah. And and I love her group of friends. Like even though we we may not get a ton about their backstories, they feel so layered and developed and like they each have their own really specific personality. So tell me about sort of coming up with these three besties. Yeah, uh, we just we wanted May's friends to feel like real girls, like real friends that we might have had in in our lives. So each girl is kind of modeled after like a real friend. Um, You know, Miriam uh, is 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 May's more like tomboyish, rebellious, goofy friend who pushes May out of her comfort zone. She's that friend that, uh, you know, your mom would not be 100% okay with you befriending. Um, you know, Abby, uh, like the fiery Korean girl, directly inspired by my real-life bestie and voice of, of Abby, Hayne Park. Uh, we were roommates <laughs> in college. And she's just that friend that gets angry for you, who's like, who's your ride or die, who defends your honor, who, who like gets mad at anybody who ever tries to, to like hurt you. We wanted, you know, a, a, a friend for me that is, is like that. Um, and then Priya, you know, just a shout out to all of the South Asians that I grew up with in Toronto, which is such a multicultural city, but also she's kind of gothy. A shout out also to, you know, there's a, everyone had that phase, that witchy, gothy phase where you're really into vampires and like very, you know, like we're werewolves and, and, uh, and that, that, that was her vibe and that, that's who she represented. Yeah. And, and also it was just a great opportunity just to show how different girls can be that we're not a monolith, that we can be goofy, we can be angry, we can be gothy, we can be dorky, um, but we we can all love like one thing, uh, like the the one thing that that binds them all together is is four town, um, and uh, yeah, and and I also just wanted to like celebrate girl nerdiness and yeah. um, just show how weird and funny uh, and crazy we can be when we're all together, and you know we all kind of had this like mind meld and we're all freaking out over the same thing. Um, Cause I don't really, I haven't seen that a lot uh, on, on the big screen, but it's something that I grew up with. Like I went to anime conventions for like my entire teen and young adult life. Uh, you know, I had artist alley tables with my friends where, where we sold fan art and we, you know, like uh, interacted with uh, other nerdy girls and boys as well. Uh, it's just, a part of my life that I was too embarrassed to ever admit and talk about, but now I want to celebrate and share with everybody because I know everybody has this 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 side of themselves too. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. 
The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And so when it came to deciding what the red pandas would look like, how many, how for different versions did you kind of go through how big they'd be, how cute they'd be? Like, how did you sort of land on what they would look like and act like? Yeah, we did a lot of research uh, by going to the San Francisco Zoo and uh, actually observing real red pandas, taking pictures of them, video recording them, and and, and just trying to capture as many of those real red panda traits as possible and and apply it to, um, to panda may. But at first, though, like we just, our, our, our goal initially was just to design Panda May to be as fluffy and cute and huggable as possible, but she ended up kind of looking and feeling like a stuffed animal or a mascot and not a living, breathing red panda. So then we went back to the drawing board, working with Rona Liu, our production designer, and the art team. We tried to capture you know, as as many characteristics of a real red panda as possible and put it into Panda May's design. Even though she's huge and real red pandas are tiny, we still wanted her to to be recognizable as a as a red panda. So we like adjusted the shape of her ears. We gave her like a more tube-like body, no neck, which made her look even cuter. Uh, <laughs> and uh just really um study different characteristics of red pandas and we try to put in the movie like when red pandas are startled they like throw their paws in the air to try to appear bigger and we made may do that in the movie and just the fact that they sleep a lot they're lazy they eat a lot they kind of had a lot of characteristics similar to a teenager so that really helped as well (laughs) (laughs) it worked out and tell me about creating the boy band because I'm curious how much inspiration like I remember that time of like peak boy band where it's just like 98 degrees in sync backstreet boy like they're all there so how how much inspiration were you taking from those actual bands and and deciding you know who this group would be yeah, uh, I mean, we were inspired by all of those boy bands of that era, of the late '90s, early 2000s. Um, I just remember back then, like it was like it was just the thing that all my classmates were obsessed about, and I wasn't as obsessed, but I wanted to be in that world. I wanted to go to a boy band concert and and see what they were seeing. Um, my parents never took me to a concert. Uh, as a as a teenager, so but I remember like my classmates would come back and they'd got they'd wear all the merch to school and they'd have a glow about them and I'm, I would be so jealous and be like oh my gosh, they're women now like what happened at the concert <laughs> <They're women. laughs> oh. and uh, this was just a really like this movie was just a 
fun opportunity for me to to like live vicariously through through May and her friends as they go to their first boy band concert. It was just such a specific goal for May and her friends to have in our movie. Like it's not to save the world. It's not to you know, save a bunch of people. Um, it's to it's to go to their first boy band concert together and take that step into womanhood together. And it was just also like, who wouldn't want to create their own boy band? Uh, it was just, it, it, it was awesome. It was a dream come true. We were like, we're trying to figure out like how many members there were. We gave, we assigned names and roles for each member. Like there's the cute one. There's the funny one. There's that one that's like way too old. That like shouldn't be there, but you know, um, and and yeah, it was just uh, amazing. And to be able to work with Billie Eilish and Phineas um, to like come up with the music for it as well, because they're also you know fans of 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 boy bands in in that era as well. Uh, yeah, it was great. It was just another way that we were able to just tap into our inner our inner tweens. <laughs> And how did that collaboration come about with Billy and Phineas? Because, I mean, her music is very different, but I feel like these songs are so, they could have been songs in the boy band era very clearly. I mean, did did you have them sort of in mind? Were you considering a bunch of songwriters? How did this come about? Yeah, I think we were considering a bunch of songwriters, but then I remember seeing this article where Billy was just talking about her obsession with Justin Bieber when she was 13. And I think she showed a photo of her in her bedroom and it was just plastered with, with Bieber posters. And I was like, she knows she like, like she knows how May and her friends feel like, like she has been there herself. So I, I feel like her and her brother could, could really help us come up with lyrics that can speak to that 13 year old girl with all of the posters in her room. And that's, and that's what we, we needed at the end, end of the day was just songwriters who could write lyrics that just could hit that mm. generation, like, like that, that age group. And, and, and we knew it, it, it was them. And I feel like, Getting Sandra O, oh, who voices, you know, May's mom in this movie would have been such a big deal because she's like a giant Asian Canadian actress <laughs> and like such a, I feel like a big deal to get for this movie. I mean, did you have her in mind or how did that come about uh, and what made her right to take on that role with the mom? Yeah, I mean, she's Asian Canadian royalty <laughs> and um, I've, you know, been such a huge fan of hers since Sideways and Grey's Anatomy and she was one of the few faces I saw growing up that looked like me, you know, in Canada or in, in North America. And and we needed uh, an actress to play Ming. We we needed someone who could do both funny and serious and dramatic you know, and, and crazy, like someone who could switch between those emotions and tones. Um, and, and she can do that so, so, um, effortlessly. And she also added such a warmth and depth to the character of Ming that, you know, that character can so easily go into stereotype, like Asian stereotype, dragon lady, tiger mom stereotype. But, Sandra just added so much to her performance that like every crazy line that she says to her daughter, to other people, it came from a place of wanting to protect her daughter, her only daughter 
um, you know, from the world. And, and the fact that she also like knew, like she could speak to that experience, right? Like, like being um, May and like being that Asian Canadian girl herself at one point too um, was huge. And I think, yeah, like she just, just completely like took that character Ming and just kind of made it her own. And, and it was amazing. So when you won the Oscar for Bao, the short film, uh, you said on stage to all those nerdy girls who hide behind their sketchbooks, don't be afraid to tell your stories to the world. And then you were also talking about sort of embracing weirdness. So I'm, <laughs> I'm so curious, obviously this film also touches on that, but I'm so curious, like, what your level of acceptance of your own weirdness was growing up and when you sort of did embrace it? Oh, man. I feel like I have only fully embraced it recently with this movie. <laughs> Almost not even by choice. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I was May. I was that girl under her bed with drawing in her secret ske- sketchbook, hoping that her mom would never see the types of drawings that she would draw. I had a secret like DeviantArt account, Tumblr account on the internet. Um, yeah, the, uh, it, it was just a whole nother world. And and also like, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, like growing up, anime, boy bands, all this stuff was so frowned upon. Like all this stuff that a lot of young girls really liked and cared about. Um, fan fiction, fan art, uh, all that stuff was laughed at and thinking back, I think that's pretty messed up. And I think that should be celebrated because there's so much, there's so many amazing artists and writers um, out there right now who are so inspired by and, and fired up about these like nerdy fandoms that I just wanted to, I, I wanted this movie just to, to celebrate that and, and to tell people that it's, it's, we're all weird. We all have that secret sketchbook and it's time. <laughs> it's time to show the world. Uh yeah, your drawings. And I and and like I'm not on Twitter, but I was loving this the turning red hashtag because at some point people just started uploading scans of their old like high school or middle school sketchbooks and all of the drawings that they used to draw that were super earnest. Super cringy and amazing drawings of like them with their crush or like their, you know, their, their fictional, non-fictional crushes like drawn from different angles. And I just love that this movie um, has just like started that, that trend of us all embracing our tween cringe. <laughs> <laughs> You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. And and I know you've taken on this bigger role at Pixar as a VP of creative, and I'm I'm curious how that's um, changing your work sort of day to day, or what you're able to f- spend your time and focus on. Yeah, I mean, I love filmmaking. I love directing, and I think I always want to be able to do that. But um, now I have this opportunity to pay forward all of the support. Uh, and trust 
that was given to me um, in my career to tell my story. And, and now I can, I can help guide the next generation through the studio gauntlet to tell their story and, and to help them keep its authenticity and, and weirdness and specialness. And, um, yeah, I, it, it's, I still trying to figure out the role to be honest, but I, I just love, you know, being able to be a cheerleader for, for new voices, um, mm-hmm. at the studio. It does. I mean, I like everyone, you know, respect and love classical old animation, but I do think the last few years in, in the animation space, which has been so exciting and feel almost, um, limitless with the sort of stories that can be told. But, you know, from your perspective as someone on the inside, where do you feel like this animation storytelling still needs to grow or spread out? Like, what are the limits that still need to be broken in that space? Yeah, I still feel, and I, I think it's a super exciting time to be in animation. And we're, yes, exactly, we're seeing all of these new voices in the space, but I still feel like, like on a film, like a film industry level, mm-hmm. animation is still considered a genre for kids in the mm-hmm. West. And mm-hmm. I'd love to see it seen more as as a medium. And growing up with anime, you know, uh, I feel like Japanese animation has really embraced it as, as more of a medium and they don't use it as a limitation in exploring like the, the types of, you know, the like darker themes and more complex stories and plots. And I'd love to kind of see more of that in in the West and, and really, yeah, just see the industry embrace and, and respect this this amazing medium that can literally bring any idea to life and tackle any issue, no matter how dark or disturbing or weird it is. It has this limitless ability to just uh, reach a huge audience and be so impactful. Um, so I would love to see, yeah, just different kinds of stories being told in, in animation. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and and where are you on your next directorial feature effort? I I, I think it was announced that you, you have plans to do something. Or is it, uh, where is it in that process? And is it something that's also sort of like this and bow, like personal, or is it something different? Um, yeah, so I'm back in development at Pixar on my next feature film. Uh, still pretty early on. We literally just started and... Uh, can't say much about it except I feel like with every project that I that I work on now I'm going to it's going to come from a personal place and that's all I can say <laughs> about that. Uh, but I but I, I I always try with each project they do to surprise audiences and and show them something they've never seen or they haven't seen yet in in Western animation so. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't wait. And, and for anyone listening who hasn't seen Turning Red yet, uh, you definitely need to check it out as soon as possible. And Tommy, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, of course. It's great talking to you. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back later this week with our roundtable conversation. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter at HWD, and on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs.
I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.